morning, Valley Forge, King of Prussia, and the greater Philadelphia area. This is We the People. The Constitution matters, and we're coming to you over the freedom airways of WFYL. I'm your host, Pastor David Whitney, and with me, my wonderful collaborator on this fine Friday morning is Phil Duffy, our constitutional instructor, and we're taking you through a series examining the history of civil governments. And this series is helpful because we need to know what didn't work. We need to know what the ideal was that our founders were aiming for when they created our constitutional republic. Note that it's a constitutional republic, not a democracy. They were very clear. Democracy was not what they were creating. In fact, they decried a democracy. They even, well, one of our founders called a democracy the worst form of government. Think about that. Our founders said democracy is the worst form of government, and yet all the politicians today tell you we are a democracy. I think there's a bit of a problem here, a bit of a disconnect uh, from our founders. And our design in, in this series, as part of what we're doing here at We the People, the Constitution Matters, is to reconnect you with our founders thinking about human civil government. And this is extremely important in our day to think clearly about human civil government, what its purpose is what its powers are and what its powers should not be, because we have tyrannical government at our every everywhere we turn right now. I mean, COVID just revealed, pulled the pulled the curtain back to reveal uh, the kind of powers they claim to have over us to shut us into our houses. Perhaps uh, what we saw in China is even a, a more extreme version of that, where they locked people into their apartments until they starve to death. Yes, literally, that's what China did, starving its people to death, locking them. Oh, we got this crisis. We're the civil government and we're in control of your health, a very dangerous concept. But our founders uh, didn't jump at the idea and the project of creating a, a new civil government, which is what they did in our constitutional republic. They spent a great deal of time studying the past looking at how other systems of human civil government had been formed and how they had either succeeded or failed depending on the definition of what is the purpose of human civil government. And our founders clearly stated that purpose in the Declaration of Independence, the opening paragraphs. They say, first of all, the first principle everyone needs to understand in this discussion is there is a creator God. No, we were not evolved from some primordial soup there is a creator God. Each one of us is his creation. There is a creator God. And it is that same creator who has given us rights. All of our rights are God-given rights. In fact, it's almost a misnomer to talk about civil rights because the whole idea of civil rights is somehow the civil government or the civil body politic uh, somewhere in there gives you your rights. And by the way, if the civil government is involved in giving you your rights, you can be absolutely certain they will take them away whenever they find it convenient to do so, <laughs> which, again, COVID is an example of, of that kind of action. Uh, yeah, we give you your right to travel, but oh, no, no, no. Eh, if there's a pandemic and we declare a pandemic, we can't prove it's a pandemic. But nonetheless, we say it's a pandemic. No more people were dying than died from a, the typical flu season. But nonetheless, we've declared a pandemic and you cannot travel or you cannot go here, or you cannot have your church, you cannot do all of these things, that kind of tyranny is not untypical in the history of human civil government over the course of time. And so this series where we're looking at uh, the historical examples of how civil governments uh, were established 
and then how they uh, function, what their purposes were, is doing the same work that our founders did, walking in a sense in their footsteps to see why did they make the decisions they made in structuring our human civil government, a civil government, very limited powers. And those powers were not uh, self-aggrandized. That is, somebody just didn't rise up and say, yeah, I'm stronger than everybody on the block. I'm going to beat you to a bloody pulp if you don't do what I say, which is typically how civil governments have come to power in the history of the world. And uh, that right, uh, you know, power makes it right, no matter what uh, uh, the, the surrounding circumstances are. And our founder said, no, no, that's a mistake because the mistake is started with the presupposition as to what is the purpose of human civil government. And they clearly stated the purpose was to protect God-given rights. There is a creator God. Our rights come from him. And the only purpose of human civil government, and you can underline that word only, that is what is stated in the Declaration of Independence. The only purpose of human civil government is to protect your God-given rights, not to see that you have your seatbelt on, not to see that you eat the proper foods or take the vitamins you're supposed to or do whatever somebody says is for your good. No, no, no. That's not their job. It's your job to determine what's good for your health and follow that with the freedom you are given by God that the human civil government exists to protect your freedom to do what you choose to say you believe is in your best interest, provided what you're doing is not offending, hurting, damaging, or, or crippling someone else's God-given rights. Well, I'm talking about uh, the seri- in this series, uh, Phil's taking us through uh, the series of ancient history, uh, and I'm taking us through the series of what uh, took place in the re- recorded history in God's Word, the Bible. Uh, the first time we took a look at what happened in the Garden of Eden, because the whole reason for human civil government is mankind's fall into sin, declaring himself a moral, independent agent from God who could determine what's right and wrong. And the result of that, of course, was disaster for the entire universe, but especially for mankind on Earth. And then last week, we, we looked at the inauguration of human civil government, because for the first several hundred millennium of the human history, there was no human civil government. But after the flood, after God judged the wicked evil of mankind, he told Noah and his sons as they came off the ark that if a person willfully took the life of another human being, what we call murder, maybe murder one, murder two, if a person intentionally takes the life of another innocent human being, that person has forfeited their own life. And the very first job, therefore, of human civil government is to execute murderers. In other words, to have a judicial system to determine who's guilty, who's innocent, and the guilty party who's committed murder is to be executed. That's the essential purpose. Now, following that event in Genesis chapter 9, mankind began to rebuild and uh, establish cities. And in Genesis chapter 11, it's very interesting because we know that from the beginning, God gave an additional command to man, and that was given all the way to the back of the Garden of Eden, that man was to, you know, cover the face of the earth, that is to spread out and basically take dominion over every corner of the earth. But the individuals in Genesis chapter 11 did not like that idea. And here's what they said. They said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. And archaeologists call these ziggurats, these uh, kind of stepped pyramids that uh, are bound throughout the, uh, the Middle East and uh, 
So this is evidently one super ziggurat that they were building. Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. So instead of doing what God had instructed to go take dominion over every corner of the earth, they decided, no, we're going to gather together and centralize power in one place. And it's going to be not just civic power, that is of human civil government, but it's also going to be religious power combined with that civic power. That's the idea of of making this tower whose top reaches into the heavens. They were going to uh, create a one world government. By the way, at this point in time, there was only one human language. Every human being spoke exactly the same language, all being descendants, obviously, of Adam and Eve, and then of uh, Noah and one of his three sons, Shem, Ham, or Japheth. So they all spoke the exact same language, and therefore they began to put this project together to build a centralized, all-powerful, one-world government. Now, one-world government located in one uh, section of the world there, in the, in the Tigris-Euphrates Valley, that, that area of the world. But uh, here it was an attempt to do the opposite of what God commanded and to establish a one-world system. And so God saw what they were doing, and God said, let it come, let us go down there and confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. And that's exactly what God did. He created all the human languages, or at least the, uh, uh, the predecessors to languages, because we know that languages do evolve over time, but the predecessors to all the existing human languages today are right there at the Tower of Babel. And by confusing their languages, obviously, they, they could not communicate with one another. They could not continue working on this project of a one-world government, one-world religion. But it's interesting that the history of the world shows that that idea has not died out. In fact, that idea has been reinvigorated and we're heading rapidly towards such a world today. The evidence there again in, in the 2020, no time in the history of the world since the Tower of Babel, no time since the Tower of Babel has there ever been an incident where every nation on earth responded to some particular incident in the same way, with the same propaganda, uh, with the same medical recommendations of base diapers and get this jab in your arm that you, nobody knows what it is. It's experimental. and We have no idea what the consequences of doing this will be, but go ahead and get it because your government says so. And why does your government says, uh, say so? Well, evidently, they've been taken over by what we call the globalists, you know, the people like the World Economic Forum, the United Nations, the World Health Organization. All these globalists have an agenda and their agenda is not hidden. It's very clear. You can read it in their documents. You can see it in the actions that they have taken. They are building a one world government. And they're also at the same time building a one world religion. That's right. There's uh, the Pope out running around now uh, claiming that Buddhists and he worship the same God. Well, maybe they do. I, I don't know, you know, the Pope in particular, uh, but uh, things that he said and done make me doubt that this current Pope is truly a, a follower of Jesus Christ. But nonetheless, He's promoting a one-world religion with himself, obviously, as the head of this one-world religion that uh, that he's going to lead. So wait a minute. If there's a one-world government, that's really what's happening with the erasure of our borders, a country that does not have a border. We now ha- have no southern border, and essentially we have no northern border. There's fewer people coming in from the cold of Canada to invade our country. But we, we, we are a nation without borders due to the evil edicts of our uh, corrupted bureaucrats in Washington, D.C. And so why do we have no borders? 
because the people in control, the people who are the globalists, believe that no one should be part of a nation's state any longer, that we should all be part of the one world order. George Bush, the first, uh, is infamous for saying, you know, we see now emerging a new world order. He was one of the globalists, as well as his son, as well as Clinton and Obama, and on and on the list of those of globalist presidents that we've had. And the only exception to the past 50 years, I think, of the globalists in the White House has been Donald Trump, which is why they hate him so much, because he's opposed to globalism. He's America first. No, America should be preserved as a nation. So it's interesting to see that this attempt back here in Genesis chapter 11, to build a one-world government, one-world religion, uh, a one-world power base, was something that God did not let happen at that time. In fact, God was adamantly opposed to it. It was the opposite of his command uh, to go to all the ends of the earth and take dominion over every uh, portion of the globe. So these one-worlders today are doing what God stopped in that day. And, and by the way, if you read the end of the Bible, the book of Revelation describes the coming one world government. It not will only be a one world government, it will be a one world religion, but also very tellingly, it will be a one world economic system that if you refuse to participate, you refuse to bow down and worship their uh, satanic system and uh, their godless uh, idol would be the Antichrist. If you refuse to be part of that, Revelation 13 says you will not be able to buy or to sell. Hmm. You'll be shut out of the one world economy if you won't participate in the one world religion and be part of the one world government. Uh, and up until this point in time in this period of our history, you might have thought that's a crazy idea. Who could ever think that every financial transaction across the entire face of the planet could ever, ever be controlled by some centralized power and authority. And yet we see that now, that exact system emerging with central bank digital currencies. That is, if the government is in control of a digital money system and you get paid digitally, that is, there's no cash, there's no other means of transacting, buying or selling other than something that's electronic, that's on the internet with a central bank digital currency and the government, not like today's cryptocurrencies, but the government is in control of those currencies, and those currencies are programmable. That is, they can say what you can buy, what you can't buy. If they think your carbon footprint is too big, they're going to turn you off or whatever. If you haven't done the proper whatever, like they do with a social credit score in China, they can turn off your ability to buy, to sell, to travel. In other words, it turns the entire world into an open-air prison where every human being on the planet is controlled by those who run the one world system. That's where they're aiming. I mean, it's very clear in their document, that's what they're uh, approved of. And that's the opposite of what God's design in his word is for human civil government, which is why in Genesis chapter 11, God destroys their plan by confusing their languages, forcing them uh, to scatter into uh, people groups across the face of the earth where they speak a common language and could communicate with each other and uh, accomplish certain uh, goals as a result of that. So, by the way, just to, you know, a spoiler alert, so to speak, if you read the end of the book of Revelation, you find out this Antichrist system that is established by uh, Satan and his minions through human beings like, you know, Bill Gates and George Soros and uh, Klaus Schwab and all these others that are uh, working on this globalist project. That will be a very short-lived phenomenon, about seven years in, in total time span that they will achieve 
this absolute dominance of everybody on planet Earth. And uh, it will come to a crashing end when Jesus Christ returns and destroys that entire system and establishes the perfect civil government that will be his kingdom for a thousand years. But that's a, a kind of a spoiler alert. If you read the end of the book, uh, you can see the good news at the end is that this will not succeed. Now, I bring all this up because these thoughts were in the idea frame of reference of the founders of our country. They understood what was attempted there at Babel to create an all-powerful central government, and they uh, d- despised that. They uh, abhorred that. In fact, that's one of their objections to King George III. He has too much power. Too much power in the hands of one person is extremely dangerous because all persons are sinners, and uh, the the sinner, even the, uh, the best of sinners, is going to at times aggrandize the power that we the people have granted them. So they saw that the safe way in which to create a human civil government is not to allow anyone to have any power whatsoever that is not checked by multiple sources, checks and balances between three branches of government, but not just the three branches of government, the four levels of government, the federal, state, uh, county, and even local town or township level form. All of these were designed to be checks against that kind of aggrandizement of power that King George III was an illustration of, but the, the big illustration was back here in Genesis 11. And they knew that that kind of uh, system, if it is allowed to go forward, will strip the individual of any of their rights, their right uh, to freedom uh, will be gone, their right to uh, financial well-being will be gone, their right uh, to think and speak as they choose will be gone, and ultimately perhaps even their right to life will be gone. And this kind of totalitarian system that is, you know, the end of time, we've seen ample examples of that. We see it today in, in China with the kind of absolute dictatorial control that that wicked communist government has over its people there. I know some people from China, and they are glad they have escaped from that totalitarian system because there they do, their rights were not secure. They've come to America legally. Not These are not illegals that have broken into our country. They came here legally because they believe that America would protect their God-given rights based upon the history of our country, based upon the form of government our framers constructed, that rather a totalitarian system like the Genesis 11 Tower of Babel that, or, or the communist Chinese uh, or the communist Russians for that matter, or the communist Cubans or Venezuelans, all those systems of totalitarianism are the opposite of what our framers designed. And see, what, what we see going on here is, a, you know, in the globalists, is a resurgence of this Babel system of Genesis 11, or yeah, and and a resurgence of that system. And if we want to see what it looks like, we can look to those communist regimes, but but realize that their goal is that it will be everywhere. And this was the goal of the communists, after all. The communists were never about just uh, in their own country, just in Russia, that they would have totalitarian dictatorship. They took over all of Eastern Europe with totalitarian dictatorships, and they had the aim to take over the whole world. That's what the battle in Vietnam was about. They, the Russians were funding and, and uh, financing the uh, uh, war for the northern Vietnamese to conquer the south so that that would all be a communist country. And that's what China has done with North Korea, and on and on it goes, that, and they want to take Taiwan. So the goal of these communists is the same as the goal of the globalists. In fact, you might argue that some of these globalists actually just are communists, 
they put a different uh, uh, color over them, a, a different robe, but essentially they're the same. They want worldwide domination of an elite group of people who are very carefully selected. And those elite group of people will have absolute power over every human being on earth, power over their health, which should remind us that what we saw in COVID was just the first test of the, the system of global control of your health. The World Health Organization is poised in May of this year, 2024, to pass a health agreement, global health agreement, and it's essentially a, a sovereignty-killing piece of uh, uh, action. I can't call it legislation because it's not, but it would say that any country that the WHO determines has a pandemic, and uh, in other words, the WHO is in complete control of when they say a pandemic is happening, and the WHO can then tell that country exactly what that country must do. You know, face diapers and injections in your arm and lockdown and, and shut down the non-essential businesses and on and on that goes. Just think of what happened with that, that whole thing about non-essential businesses. It meant some people were declared that their livelihood, the thing that they trained for, worked for, they may have sacrificed a great deal to establish their business was non-essential. Our founders would reject all such ideas because they said all men are created equal. That's right, created equal. Therefore, before their creator, they have every right to exercise their God-given rights to conduct their business, keep their church open, or whatever it is that they're doing. And uh, COVID said, no, 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 we're going to take control of every single uh, jurisdiction. And this is what the World Health Organization is about. In a sense, I uh, believe the World Health Organization is poised to establish this sovereign control over every nation on earth, basically revisiting and reattempting to build a modern day uh, tower of Babel. So that's a bit of history from the scripture and uh, would have clearly related and resonated with our founders and, and their thinking and understanding. Bill, why don't you bring us your thoughts on, on ancient history? Well, okay, we'll be talking about Persian Greece today and Herodotus opens the histories with the Persian side of the story about the cause of the enmity between the Greeks and the Persians that so characterized the relationship between the two civilizations. According to Herodotus, Persian claimed the uh, Phoenicians took to making long trading voyages loaded with Egyptian and Assyrian goods. They called at various places along the coast, including Argos, in those days the most important place in the land now called Hellas. Here at Argos, they displayed their wares, and five or six days later, when they had nearly sold out, a number of women came down to the beach to see the fair. Among these was the king's daughter, whom the Greek and Persian writers agree in calling Eo, daughter of Inachus. These women were standing about near the vessel's stern, buying what they fancied, when suddenly the Phoenician sailors passed the word along and made a rush at them. The greater number got away, but Eo and some others were caught and bundled aboard the ship, which cleared at once and made off for Egypt. Herodotus continued to describe a number of tit-for-tat wife stealings that led to the uh, led to Paris abducting Helen, which in turn led to the Battle of Troy. Herodotus was not above passing on myths, so we need to assume the story is we need not assume that the story is true. There is uh, 
a much bigger story that arises from reflecting on Herodotus's tale. Consider Babylonia, situated between the watersheds in the Tigris and Euphrates, both emptying into the Persian Gulf, and ultimately the Gulf of Oman and the Indian Ocean. Babylonia had several limitations as an environment for trade. First, river navigation is predominantly one way. Cleverly, Babylonian, uh, Babylonians built ships that could be disassembled at the end of the river shipping route and then hauled by land to the upstream starting point. Second, river navigation limits the draft of the ship to the shallowest point in the waterway. Third, once tidal waters are reached, trade becomes more dangerous beyond any protected waterways. The Babylonians could safely trade along the Persian Gulf and the Gulf of Oman, but beyond that, they were exposed to the weather conditions of the Indian Ocean. Deeper draft ships could increase safety, but these were not optimized for river navigation. And last, the Babylonian river systems focused trade, allowing government to exert its taxing power over the merchant. The significance of Herodotus's tale is that it describes a major breakthrough in commerce. The distance from Tel Aviv to the port of Gibraltar at the western end of the Mediterranean Sea is 2,272 nautical miles, which should be doubled at a minimum considering North African ports as well as European ports that were accessible. When measuring reachable shoreline, effective trading possibilities were significantly greater. Drafts of ships were no longer constrained by river depths, increasing cargo sizes, and the length of cost-effective trade routes. The Mediterranean was more open to weather hazards than the Babylonian rivers, but still would be considered protecting waters by comparison with the open oceans. Finally, government would find it more difficult to extend its taxing towers over this enormous trading area. As we explore the nature of government in Persia and Greece, we should reflect on the importance of Mediterranean trade in sharpening the power struggle between the governing and trading classes. That struggle continues to the present. Let's look at Persia specifically. Will Durant, in our Oriental Heritage, begins his description of Persian civilization with the Medes in 837 BC. The Medes would ultimately become just a province of Persia under Cyrus, but there was an earlier period of time in which they established their own sovereignty. The first king, Diocese, founded their first capital, adorning and dominating it with royal palace, uh, a royal palace spread over an area two-thirds of a mile square. <laughs> According to an uncorroborated uh, passage in Herodotus, Diocles received power by acquir acquiring a reputation for justice, and having achieved power, became a despot. The greatest of the Median kings, uh, Zaya, uh, Zaya, pardon me with this one, Zaya, uh, Zaya, Zaya, Zaya Rexes. Let's call it. Okay. Destroyed the, the Assyrian capital, Nineveh, and its army swept the Sardis in today's western Turkey. When uh, Cyaxerus 
died, he had expanded his kingdom from a subject province into an empire embracing Assyria, Media, and Persia. Cyrus deposed Cyaxer's uh, successor, becoming the first of the Persian great kings. Wilderand commented about Cyrus. Cyrus was one of those natural rulers at whose coronation, as Emerson said, all men rejoice. Royal in spirit and action, capable of wise administration as well as dramatic conquests, generous to the defeated and loved by those who had been his enemies. Now, one of the Greeks made him the subject of innumerable romances and, to their minds, the greatest hero before Alexander. Cyrus freed the Jews from their Babylonian captivity and even helped them build a second temple, uh, temple in Jerusalem. He was noted for his tolerance of the cultures of the people he conquered. Among these uh, virtues, Duran also noted that one great defect had sullied his character, occasional and incalculable cruelty. Cyrus was followed by his half-made son, Candacis, whose cruelty was unchecked. He was deposed by a usurper, who in turn was deposed by Darius I, who had the support of seven aristocrats. Durant observed, <clears throat> succession to the throne in Oriental monarchies was marked not only by palace revolutions and strife for the war royal power, but by uprisings in subject colonies that grasped the chance of chaos or an inexperienced ruler to reclaim their liberty. The last of the three great kings of Persia was Xerxes, the son of Darius I, who had been defeated by the Greeks at Marathon. Although generally sensible, he was pressured to get retribution for his father's defeat. Xerxes took three years to prepare for the campaign. He had some early successes against the Greeks, including the Battle of Thermopylae and the pillaging of Athens before losing to the Greeks in the naval battle of Thalamus. Without a fleet to support a large army on the European continent, <clears throat> Xerxes was forced to retire to the Asian mainland, where he seemed to abandon the martial life in favor of the joys of palace living. The lives of three great Persian kings demonstrate the difference between military success for monarch and Locke's ideal of civil government. Cyrus was successful militarily, and he established a reputation for leniency in his conquered territories, <clears throat> which today would be considered a virtue. Nonetheless, there's no suggestion that Cyrus tolerated government of, by, and for the people. Will Durant commented, <clears throat> In such a state, the only law was the will of the king and the power of the army. <clears throat> no rights were sacred against these, and no precedents could avail except an earlier decree of the king the father whose innocent son had been shot before his eyes, and the king merely complimented the modern on his excellent archery. Of earlier civilizations explored, only Babylonia, with its significant commercial class, offered an opportunity for Locke's bottom-up civil government. It appears that Persia's government was more along the lines of its predecessor, Assyria, although it was able to extend its hegemony over a larger geographical area. 
It seems to have spurned commerce as did succeeding civilizations until the founding of the United States and the temporary victory of British classical liberalism in the 19th century. <clears throat> Durant, uh, Durant commented, industry was poorly developed in Persia. She was content to let the nations of the Near East practice the handicrafts while she bought, bought her products with their imperial tri uh, tribute. <clears throat> she showed more originality in improvement of communications and transport. Engineers under Darius I built great roads uniting the various capitals. <clears throat> One of these highways from Susa to Sardis was 1,500 miles long. These roads were built primarily for military and governmental purposes, facilitate central control and administration, but they served also to stimulate commerce. With all of its faults, Durant was impressed with the Persian government. Despite the high charges for its services, the Persian Empire was the most successful experiment in imperial government that the Mediterranean world would know before the coming of Rome. The cruelty and dissipation of later monarchs, the occasional barbarism of the laws, and the heavy tax, uh, heavy burdens of taxation were balanced as human governments go by such order and peace as made the provinces rich despite these levies, and by such liberty as only the most enlightened empires have accorded to subject states. It is ironic that an imperial government sustained by terror, initiated by its monarchs, should at the same time allow such diversity of culture in its subject provinces, <clears throat> a characteristic of a Lockean civil government environment. But Persia was the antithesis of Lockean civil government. Let's turn our attention to Greece. <clears throat> By comparison with civilizations previously discussed, School systems today tend to focus more attention on ancient Greece. Unfortunately, much of what is conveyed to students paints an overly optimistic picture of Grecian government. It's true that Greeks fought bravely to repulse two Persian invasions, and as a result were able to enjoy greater freedom than had they been a European province of Persia. But when historians talk about the Golden Age of Athens, and imply that government during that time was an example of the first experiment in democracy, one should have reservations. What did it mean to be a part of the Greek world? It was not limited to residents of mainland Greece and a few <clears throat> outlier uh, islands in the Aegean, Aegean Sea. Grecian city-states arose along the shores of the Sea of Mar Marmora and the Black Sea. They appeared on the periphery in the Persian Empire, Empire, Palestine, and along the North African coast of Spain, Marseille, modern France, Italy, and Sicily. Greeks took their language and their culture with them, making the Mediterranean a great, uh, a great lake and the center of the world. Unity of language enabled them to fight more effectively against their principal external enemy, Persia, at Marathon and Salamis, but did not prevent them from fighting each other as when Sparta and Athens squared off in the disastrous Peloponnesian War. Of all the city-states, Athens was the most renowned for its accomplishments, 
It was not naturally endowed, however, according to Will Durant. The summers are hot, though dry and tolerable in the lowlands. In ancient days, malarial swamps attracted from the healthiness of the air. The soil of Attica, peninsula on which Athens lies, is poor. Nearly everywhere, the basic rock lies close to the surface and makes agriculture a heartbreaking struggle for the simplest goods of life. Only adventurous trade and the patient culture of the olive and the grape made civilization possible in Attica. <clears throat> As in Babylonia, trade created a commercial class. But one less submissive to monarchies, it is in Greece that the first experiments in democracy are said to have been initiated. But analysis of these experiments suggests that today they would be labeled oligarchies. Durant offers a clue about how oligarchies arose on the Attican Peninsula. Relationships of blood gave the Atticans their social organization. Each family belonged to a tribe whose members claimed the same divine heroic ancestor, worshipped the same deity, joined in the same religious ceremony, had a common archon or governor and treasurer, owned together certain communal lands, enjoyed among themselves the rights of intermarriage and bequest, accepted obligations of mutual aid, vengeance, and defense, and slept at last in the tribal burial place. Each of the four tribes of Attica was composed of three uh, fratries or brotherhoods. Each fratry of 30 clans, and each clan, as nearly as possible, of 30 heads of families. The kinship classification of Attic uh, society lent itself not only to military organization and mobilization, but to so clannish and aristocracy of old families that Cleisthenes had to redistribute the tribes before he could establish democracy. It was a step after that which could hardly be called democracy. Durant relates, <clears throat> as the 7th century drew to a close, the bitterness of the helpless poor against the legally entrenched rich had brought Athens to the edge of revolution. Solon was still relatively young, 44 or 45, when he, in 594, representatives of the middle classes asked him to accept election nominally as Archon Eponymous, but with dictatorial powers to soothe the social war, establish a new constitution, and restore stability to the state. The upper classes, trusting in the conservatism of a moneyed man, reluctantly consented. Solon created a constitution that recognized four classes based, based upon the amount of tax paid. Only the first class was eligible for election to the archonship, the old fed of Areopagus, and military commands. The Senate retained supreme authority over the conduct of the people and the officers of the state. Refusing dictatorship, Solon stepped down from public uh, life after uh, serving as archon uh, for 22 years. Solon was followed by his cousin, uh, Pisistratus, uh, who established a dictatorship. Athenians revolted against, uh, upon the death of Pisistratus, 
when a son succeed, uh, succeeded his father in Cleisthenes, previously mentioned by Will Durant as establishing democracy, established a popular dictatorship. Solon's class system was replaced with a new system that further eroded the power of the old tribes and expanded the powers of the assembly. Cleisthenes brought a reform and more popular government, but Durant was forced to admit it. The democracy was not complete. It applied only to free men and still placed a modest property uh, limitation upon eligibility to individual laws. The most persistent Grecian myth, however, is associated with Athens and what Durant called the democratic experiment under Pericles. For many, this period of democracy was the forerunner of the New England town meeting style of government, which becomes suspicious when we understand that Athens was no simple city-state, but was a mercantile empire that, is, that spanned 2,000 miles from east to west. Durant asked, but who does all of the work? In the countryside, it is done by citizens, their families, and free hired men. In Athens, it is done partly by citizens, partly by freedmen, more by medics, mostly by slaves. The medics were foreigners who resided in Athens, and the freedmen were former slaves who had been freed. Neither enjoyed citizenship. Athenian citizens scorned labor and formed a leisure class above the rest. Durant related a census in 317 BC as 21,000 citizens, 10,000 medics and freedmen, and 400,000 slaves but relates that these figures may be unreliable. Given that the citizens of the countryside and those of the remote colonies of, of Athens have little, uh, had little opportunity to influence politics in Athens itself, it is apparent that Athens in its golden age was an oligar oligarchy rather than a democracy. <clears throat> and that oligarchy was imperial as was evident in the treatment of people of the Aegean island of Amelos, who wished only to remain neutral in the Peloponnesian War. An Athenian naval attack was conducted, and its leaders insisted that the Melians cooperate in their war, including paying tribute. A siege resulted when the Melians refused to join the Athenians as, uh, <coughs> as allies. Subsequently, uh, the Melians facing starvation, surrendered. All the adult males were massacred, and the women and children were enslaved. Athens' imperial oligarchy was a significant step toward representative government, but a long way from the ideal John Locke had described the civil government in his second treatise of government. Oh, thank you, Phil. That really uh, clears up uh, the myth about Greece being a democracy. Uh, you know, I just did little numbers. Of course, you said those lump numbers that Durant related may not be accurate of uh, 400,000 slaves, 10,000 medics, and uh, 21,000 citizens. But if those numbers, we just take that as a, a we'll assume that they're true, give us an idea. That means 19.5% of the populace were citizens. <laughs> so, 80.5% uh, 80, of the people were either slaves or medics that did not have citizenship, did not vote, did not have any control over what happened uh, in their life. 
so yeah, that that is a huge myth that we've all been sold about the oh the wonderful democracy of uh, of Greece and that uh, our founders looked to Greece and, and Rome for their ideas for government. That's not true. They looked to uh, the biblical model that we're going to look at in the weeks ahead called the Hebrew Republic. They recognized what was taking place in Greece. They recognized what was taking place in Rome, but they were not the clear model that they were seeking to base uh, the system of government on that they established for us. So is, I thank you so much for that, because so often you hear that, you know, the ideas of democracy we're following mean that, that we're following the Greeks and the Romans and so forth. And that I, I'm so thankful that you pointed out that's an absolute myth. And I like the what we're seeing here in not only this week, but the previous week, that most of these uh, empires rose to prominence because of military a- action, military campaign. You know, you quoted uh, Durant earlier saying, in such a state, only the only law was the will of the king and the power of the army. No rights were sacred against these. In other words, there's no God-given rights. It's whatever the king decides, he's going to give you a privilege or give you a license. Uh, and so it... Uh, and it goes on to say, and no precedence could avail except an earlier decree of the king. So in a sense, that theory is uh, divine right of kings, that the king, being the highest human on earth, has all the power in his hands, particularly he's got the military in his hands. He can come and, and do what uh, uh, the Greeks did to the island of Melos, and we're just going to massacre all your males and enslave all, all your children and women uh, because we have the military power to do so. The idea that might makes right. And that's not at all what our founders were adhering to. And it's not at all, like you point out, what John Locke was talking about in his second treatise, nor what William Blackstone was talking about in his commentaries on the laws of England, nor uh, uh, the other writers each of our founders were reading. Emmerich de Vital and uh, uh, you know Montesquieu, all of these writers were talking about an idea that is presented in the scriptures, not an idea that is presented in these forms of government, which be, at their best, you, you noted that, well, maybe, you know, uh, it, uh, maybe the Medo-Persian empire was the best in terms of how they treated their conquered populace, but they still went out and conquered the populace and then subjected them to all sorts of taxation. And, you know, uh, they were maybe the mildest of the, the, the batch of ancient empires, but it's, valuable. And again, like I said earlier, our founders knew about these ancient histories and they understood that these were not the model that they were seeking to follow in establishing our constitutional republic. Yeah, I was fascinated by your uh, discussion of the, the Tower of Babel. Um, and of course, the the idea that there was a single uh, language that they enjoyed uh, prior to undertaking that project and came out of it with multiple languages. They were unable to understand each other and so forth. In the United States today, however, we do have a single official language, which I think is still considered to be English. Uh, yet we've lost the ability to communicate among ourselves. <laughs> uh, and I was recently reading Solzhenitsyn's uh, Gulag Archipelago, and <clears throat> I came across a central idea that he got across about um, how the Soviets um, came to, to really trash the idea of morality, if you will. And basically, uh, his idea was that they, they adhered to ideology 
And I thought, well, this is fascinating. And by the way, uh, uh, George uh, Kennan, uh, who was an ambassador to to the Soviets, also had some some thoughts about this the same thing about uh, ideology, how ideology had played such an important role in the thinking of the the revolutionaries and the people. And as I looked into the significance of um, ideology, there was a definition, and it uh, related to somebody in the, the French Revolution uh, era, a um, fellow by the name of the, the Tracy, and he's the first one who used the term ideology. And it's interesting that even back then in the French Revolution, it, ideology was not just a set of ideas, which sometimes is taken as a broad description of ideology. Um, and he had five criteria. Only one of those criteria dealt with what would be considered a broad interpretation of ideology. The other four have to do with the coercive use of government to enforce um, social engineering. And that is the way, that is the, the real essence of ideology. When we use the term today, uh, that is the way it's, it's thought of. And ideology is creating its own language, if you will, for collectivists. Uh, they relate first to ideology and the agenda that comes from that, and then they'll uh, consider other issues. But uh, the Western idea, by contrast, is one that is based upon scripture, if you will, and uh, the idea of, of rational thinking, that idea is totally rejected by the concept of uh, strict ideology. Hmm. Well, fascinating, because it is true that uh, the uh, perversion, I would say, of language is one of the tools of the Marxists that they use to destroy. I mean, their goal is always to tear down, destroy, and uh, on the ashes of what civilization they destroy then to build their you know, communist workers' paradise, which never works out to be a communist workers' paradise, of course. It's all a lie to gain power. It's all a lie to steal resources, and uh, they are pretty effective at doing the stealing and the lying. But you're right. They twist language around, and they change the meaning of words. And, and this is a very dangerous thing. We see it in our own day, that the meaning of words twisted to mean something that they never originally meant, and as well as the invention of uh, new words, like I don't think a hundred years ago, if you use the word transgender, anybody would know what you meant at all. What's that? That's a, you know, it's a crazy idea packed into this new terminology that's put forward by these ideologues uh, in order to accomplish their ultimate purpose, which is complete power over the people. And that's the, that's a sad thing that, that that is happening worldwide is people don't realize that their liberties are being stripped away from them piece by piece, bit by bit, and th they're being sold this stripping of their liberties as, oh, it's going to be good for you. You know, this is going to give you a basic universal income. Well, wait a minute, where's that money coming from? If I'm going to get money from who's, who's producing something now, we're just going to give you. Now, the government doesn't give us anything. It hasn't stolen from someone else. And so all of these ideas are designed to strip us of our liberty but in a sense, with our consent, that we'll go along with it because, well, we think we're going to benefit by having, uh, you know, a full bank account where we can go out and spend money that uh, we never earned, or 
you think of the the entire uh, really evil uh, sexual anarchy agenda that has been going ever since the 1960s. It destroys the very fabric and the foundation of society by attacking the essential building block of the society, and that is the marriage of one man to one woman for life. And if you attack that foundation, whether you're using a easy divorce laws, like uh, Ronald Reagan was the first to sign no-fault divorce in California, uh, and pornography, and, and promotion of sodomy, e- even to little children in kindergarten, they're promoting sodomy, all of this evil is destructive of the very foundation. If we could get it in our mind, that's what these globalists, that's what these Marxists, they want to destroy everything in order to build their you know, modern day Tower of Babel, a one world government, one world religion, a one world economy, where if you do not submit to them, you do not do every single thing they command you to do. Well, so your, uh, di- uh, your central bank digital currency is turned off and you can't buy or sell. You can't travel because that's, uh, I think, the other push here with the electric vehicles. When they don't work in the wintertime, all kinds of people are saying, wow, that wasn't a very good idea. Why did I buy an electric vehicle? Well, you were sold the idea uh, by the globalists. Oh, the electric vehicles are wonderful. You'll be a good global citizen if you get one and then it doesn't run in the wintertime. Well, uh, that, that not only does it run in the wintertime, it, is, it, is, it empowers them to track you everywhere and also to limit and restrict how far you can travel. You know, you can only go so far before you get an get a electric refill, and that's nothing like you can get on a, a tank of gasoline. So restricting our travel, restricting our money, restricting our liberties, that's what this globalist agenda is all about. Well, uh, George Kennan had a very interesting insight, and he wrote a book um, called Russia and the West Under Lenin and Stalin. And basically, um, this this starts, uh, the narration starts uh, at, at the uh, First World War, when Russia was an ally initially of, the, of Britain and France and ultimately the United States um, against Germany and Austria. And uh, the point that, that he made was that uh, there was discussion between the two parties, the, the uh, Bolsheviks, when they came to power as a result of the Russian Revolution. Uh, there was discussion. However, the West was so focused on their point of view that they never listened to what the, the Bolsheviks were saying. Now, it might, might have frightened them if they, they understood it, but at least if they had listened, they would have had a better sense of how the other side was thinking. And the basic idea was that Marxists don't think that they distort language. They believe that language itself um, and also um, ideas are fundamental to the class. In other words, they have their language, their ideas, and so forth, and the rest of the world has theirs. And those are called bourgeois uh, bourgeoisie uh, ideas. And so they reject them. They say, you know, we're going to have the future. These people are going to be buried. We heard Khrushchev uh, say that, I think, in the 50s. Uh, so they, they look at things very, very differently. And really what we have to do is to understand how they think, but not try to emulate them in terms of 
um, ideology. We have to, we'll, we'll never do that. Yeah, you know, we can never win. We can win based upon reason because no collectivist organization or government has ever succeeded. Yeah, so we could compare Joseph Stalin, say, to any one of the emperors that, that uh, we've talked about with ancient history here, and you know, whether it's a, uh, some of those emperors are probably more lenient and very uh, you know, kind to their people who they conquered, and Stalin was very brutal, but it was the same idea. Whatever Stalin said law is, that's what law was. Whatever the emperor of Babylon or the emperor of Assyria or the emperor of Greece, whatever the emperor said, uh, that is what it was. And uh, uh, in Greece, the slight difference was you had a you know a twenty percent, not quite twenty percent, a little less than twenty percent of the uh, the people that were the ruling class. And of course, among them, there was even those who were more powerful than the others. But uh, uh, that ruling class, rather than one individual, one monarch or one emperor, uh, ruled the rest, the eighty percent of, of the people. And what the insight that has just uh, helped me to kind of crystallize all this is to see that the Marxists and the globalists who don't identify themselves necessarily as Marxists, they're after the exact same thing, world domination with an oligarchy of the elite commanding and enslaving the entire populace of the world. Well, Greece really replaces the, uh, um, the imperial, not the imperial, I should say the monarchical model with an oligarchy. Um, and that's a significant step forward. I'll, I'll acknowledge that. Basically, what you're doing is you're broadening the base of power. Uh, it's no longer concentrated in a single person as it was in, with Lenin and Stalin, by the way. <clears throat> but basically, uh, you still have an elite group which is running things. Now, do you have representative government? Yes. But, you know, how representative would it be? Well, that's the same problem that we're faced with today. I mean, when we started this nation in uh, the late 18th century, I think we had something like one um, representative for 30,000 people, something of that nature. Well, now, basically, uh, a representative district is one to three quarters of a million. I mean, how can that person represent my views that you are? There's no way it can happen. He or she is, is going to fall back on special interests because special interests are far more effective at reaching these people and offering them something like continuation in office. And so instead of a constitutional republic, we have an oligarchy of those who are elected in com combination with the special interests, like you're talking about various lobbyist groups to the lobbyist group that has the most money, I guess they get to exactly what they want in terms of legislation and, and uh, power. Uh, so we have an oligarchy based upon the moneyed interest instead of the constitutional republic where we the people are the ones represented. We the people are the ones who hold the power ultimately in our hands and through our representatives govern uh, this nation. Well, this is the, the We the People, the Constitution Matters coming to you over the airways of WFYL. We invite you to join us next Friday morning at 8 a.m., but also check out our website, 1180wfyl.com. Click on podcasts all the way down at the very bottom. And you'll see We the People, the Constitution Matters. Join us again next Friday morning.